Please do join me in turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to pick up today where we left off last Sunday. Let's uh, go to the Lord now and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Would you be pleased by your Holy Spirit to help us understand your truth, help us to apply your truth. Oh, Father, be pleased to indeed open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts as we gather. Feed us your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I... uh, like to listen to the radio in the car, and uh, one of the local stations here in the Cincinnati area often has a, a show or a segment sponsored by Johnson Investment Council. Johnson Investment Council. Now, I've heard of wealth, made, uh, wealth management companies, and I've heard of wealth advisory companies, but the name Johnson Investment Council kind of I'd never heard it before. So the other day I went to um, their website and I read this. um, Wealth management focused squarely on your future. The wealth is yours. The responsibility is ours. They go on to say this. When you come to Johnson, we know you are entrusting us with your most valuable assets. As one of the largest independent advisory firms in the country, the Johnson team is fully committed to this responsibility. Our diversified, high-quality investment strategies and wealth management services are designed to set you on a path for long-term success. Through it all, we want you to know a Johnson advisor is a partner for life. So that's what Johnson Investment Council thinks about itself. We know that God's word provides investment counsel for what really is your most valuable asset, your life. Ecclesiastes, in particular, it's, it's in the wisdom literature. It, it provides counsel. In today's text, we're going to find a, a diversity of counsel, sad counsel, bad counsel, and wise counsel. The preacher will help us determine what to reject and what to receive, what to abandon and what to embrace. Ecclesiastes, as we've been saying week after week, helps us stay anchored to our calling. To do what? To live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in a fallen world, a world that is full of sin and misery full of frustration and futility, full of confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes is presenting to us verse after verse, chapter after chapter, the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. The preacher wants us to see, wants us to know that life without God is empty. It's it's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. There's nothing to it. There's no substance. But life with God 
is fulfilling. It's lasting. We've been saying that it's important to always remember the bookends of Ecclesiastes that that, um, bring everything and hold everything together. We remember at the beginning, the preacher says, all is vanity. Not that it's without meaning, but it's like a mist. It's like vapor. It's like smoke. It's like breath. It's, it's fleeting. It's, it's really empty. And at the end, he proclaims once again, after 12 chapters worth of material, he says, all is vanity. But he also has some other words at the end. He says that, hey, Ecclesiastes is going to have words of pleasure, words of delight, but also words of pain, like the shepherd nailing in the goats. It's going to have words that provide perspective, the sum of the matter, to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. But it also calls us to prepare for the inevitable death and judgment. We've seen so far the preacher set up the longing for something new and lasting. We've seen the preacher begin this journey. He says, I've seen everything and I'm a wise man. Yet there is a lot in Ecclesiastes that really does make us feel worse after we read it than before we read it. But again, even in that, he's achieving his purpose. We've seen the preacher pursue three different avenues, pleasure, wisdom, and toil. He's been saying, hey, this is a hedonistic life, this is the contemplative life, and this is the active life, and they are all vain, they're dead ends. You don't achieve what you set out to find. Last week, in the first seven uh, verses of chapter 5, we saw a warning and an invitation. And if you were here last week, remember that, that that text served sort of like a construction sign of sorts, calling us to either slow down and and stop or to proceed and go slow. We saw last week the movement from the horizontal uh, to the vertical in terms of relationships, a change from, from life just viewed under the sun to the house of God. And we saw a shift from just making observations to making exhortations. And in his exhortations, the preacher, we saw issue both a warning and an invitation when it comes to worship. We saw that our, that Old Testament text was a witness of what God expects and requires in worship. And we saw it lean forward to worship in spirit and in truth through the merit and mediation of the coming King, the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that brings us up to today's text where we'll pick up where we left off. Now, before we actually get into the text, I have to uh, make some comments about the structure of a text. Um, if you read the email on Friday, I mentioned that it's been, it's really challenging sometimes to find where the text to preach begins and ends. In other words, the text boundaries. Because as you know, um, somebody could preach all of John chapter 3. Someone could also preach John 3.16. How do you know? How do you know what to choose? And it took a while, but finally I settled in on this text from 5, 8 through 6, 9. And the reason why is, and I was helped by a few commentators, is what we see in this text is a a chiasm uh, coming from the, the Greek 
letter chi, and its, its basic structure is, is that of an X. And a chiasm looks at like the left side of the X. Chiasm is a, a common literary structure in the ancient Near East that uses parallel concepts or words to make a point. It's a structural device in which the point of the text is highlighted both by its separateness, it alone has no parallel, and by its central placement. It's found in the middle of the text. What we will see is the author takes similar themes and he starts from both sides and he works his way to the center. It narrows in, as we will see, on the main theme, which is found at the center. It's the poetic and the practical point of the text. You might have been familiar with um, kind of the structure like this, A, B, C, B, A. A, B, C, B, A. A's are parallel, B's are parallel, and C is right in the middle. Or, some of you, and I was more helped by this, it's like a step pyramid. You know, you've got the first step on either side, and you go up, and there's the next step, and finally you get to the top, the middle, a step pyramid. And it's a deliberate structure that I think will see give us a definite message. Because I believe our text describes possible investments. And we will see that some investments are sad. Some are bad. Others are wise. And we're going to make our way through the text by working our way from the outside to the inside. From the sad to the bad to the wise. And so we're going to begin with a sad investment. And we see that from verses 8 through 12 of chapter 5 and 6, excuse me, and 7 through 9 of chapter 6. Let me read those. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to, cultivating, to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And then verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Did you notice the expressions will not be satisfied? Not satisfied. The first point is simple. The love of money the love of money is a sad investment because it cannot bring ultimate satisfaction. 
And we see that summarized in in verse 10 of chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Now we've got to spend a moment looking at verses 8 and 9. Um, It's a difficult passage there to to translate, to interpret, to apply. Um, The preacher is saying this, Do not be amazed by the oppression and justice that's found in the system of the world. Um, He's saying be realistic about the fallen world. And is it pessimistic or optimistic? Well, it really depends on how it's translated. Um, uh, the ESV, which I'm using, kind of leans toward a, an optimistic um, uh, 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 st- side, although it could be translated and it would land sort of pessimistic. And the idea that, you know, everybody's out for everybody and, and you're working your way to the top, but you've got to, um, you got to pay, as it were, to get there. And the ones on top are going to extract wealth from ones on below. But regardless, this last verse, but this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And whether it's optimistic or or pessimistic, there is no doubt that it is one text that's saying that we are to live in hope for a better administration, better people, a better government. And of course, Isaiah 9 that we heard recently around Advent speaks of the government being upon the shoulders of the one to come. Of course, Jesus. But let's look now at verses 10 through 12. Will not be satisfied. It's vanity. There's advantage and there's disadvantage. But the question is, well, what advantage? Well, interestingly, there is an advantage to being poor. Advantage to being uh, a laborer. Notice that sleep comes to the laborer. But restlessness and no sleep comes to the rich. And interestingly, it's because of a full stomach we read at the end of verse 12. Again, it's a sad investment to spend your life attempting to gain wealth, to love wealth, to love money. And notice... What he says here is echoed in what we read from chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. It's not, there's no satisfaction. And this also, he says, he sums it up, is vanity and a striving after wind. Remember, he pursued pleasure, no satisfaction. Pursued wisdom, in and of itself, no satisfaction. Pursued uh, work and toil, in and of itself, no satisfaction. Here, loving money, no satisfaction. I mean, wealth does have advantages and disadvantages, but the love of money, the preacher is saying, of course, it's echoed by Paul when he writes to Timothy, love of money is especially disadvantageous because it cannot satisfy that covetous craving. Love of money is an addiction that is just never satisfied. I think it's real important to... um, always look at the biblical text and everybody, not everybody, but a lot of folks just say, oh, money is the root of all evil, right? No, that's a misunderstanding. It's a mistranslation of what Paul says to him, that the love of money is a root, not even the root, but a root of all kinds of evil. The passion, the desire, the idolatry. So as we think about a sad 
investment. The question is, is ask yourself this, what are you investing in right now that doesn't satisfy? Because we're all on a quest to find something that does satisfy, that finds, provides security, significance. What are you pursuing right now in which you know you're coming up empty? That you know is vanity. In the reason for God, the author Tim Keller says this, that it's often tempting to just look at the problems with people out there and not take a look at the problem in here, in your own heart. And he makes this statement, the real cultural war is taking place inside our own disordered hearts, racked by inordinate desires for things that control us and that fail to satisfy us even when we get them. I remember a few years ago watching an interview uh, with, at the time, the New England Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady. And he was asked by the correspondent, um, you know, you've got all these Super Bowl rings. Um, uh, are, are you satisfied? Could you retire? He's like, no. I, I win a championship and there's still this empty feeling. And the correspondent then asked him, well, what, basically, what, what do you think would give you not the empty feeling? And he's like, I don't know. I mean, whether you're a professional quarterback or you are in preschool, you're going to be chasing after something. And you'll probably find out that it doesn't satisfy. Here again, the point, the focus is that love of money. It's a sad investment. It can't bring ultimate satisfaction. But not only that, but the love of money is a bad investment. You see, it can actually cause harm. We're going to pick up now looking at verses 13 through 17 of chapter 5 and then moving uh, to verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6. So let's look at a bad investment. There is a grievous, a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, he shall, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And then chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. 
If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he." Even though he should, have, he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? Wow. This bad counsel, this bad investment. I mean, this is one of those sections in Ecclesiastes that really does make you feel worse after reading it than before. But again, it's by design. Notice in verses 13 through 17, the preacher says, hoarding wealth hurts. Hoarding wealth hurts in at least three ways. First, riches can be suddenly and ruinously lost. We see that in verse 14 of chapter 5. And we heard the example earlier. Even though Job did nothing to warrant it for God's purposes, for God's Hidden, mysterious purposes, Job lost everything but his own life. And it happened, what, in a day? In a day. 9-11. In a day. Riches can suddenly and ruinously be lost. But not just like in a surprise moment, but hey, riches are certain to disappear at death. And we see that in verses 15 and 16 of how really you came with nothing and you're going to leave with nothing. It, it's so, I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, do this. Um, it's trite, it's trivial, but maybe it's true. You know, kids, no U-Haul trailers on the back of hearses, Right? You can't take it with you. Now, we know that, right? We all know that. But do our lives reflect that? Again, just this poetic, proverbial statements that the preacher makes. Riches can suddenly be lost. Riches are certain. They're going to be lost at your own death. And thirdly, riches without God's gift of the ability to enjoy them. In other words, everything that money can buy and does buy is actually joyless. Look at again, chapter 6, verse 2. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. He's got them, but he can't enjoy them. There's, there's no satisfaction. There's no joy. And then in verses 1 through 6, we see that the absence of power to enjoy wealth is harmful. Did you hear the words evil and vanity, a grievous evil? The language is is fascinating. Comes in vanity and goes in darkness. Once again, as he sort of repeats what he said earlier, it is actually better in view of this It is better to have not been born at all. And it's in the context of having wealth and possessions, but God hasn't given that person the power to enjoy 
them. Hoarding wealth hurts. The absence of power to enjoy wealth is harmful. So earlier we asked the question, what are you investing in that just doesn't satisfy? How are you spending your time, your talent, your treasure? Investing in not only what doesn't satisfy, but actually harms you, hurts you, and of course would hurt and harm others. Becky Pippert in her book from I think the 1970s, Out of the Salt Shaker, says this, whoever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. I mean, it's like our postcard, isn't it? To be human is to worship. Who or what are you worshiping? Because what you worship, you're a slave to. It controls you. And here, the emphasis in our text has been on the love of money. The love of money is at best a sad investment. It cannot bring ultimate satisfaction. The love of money is further a bad investment. It can actually bring harm. And so what is a good investment? I mean, if if one investment is sad and the other is bad, what's good? What's, What's a wise investment? Well, it's found at the center of our text. It's the heart of our text. A wise investment is this, to trust God by enjoying his good gifts. Let's read verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What a contrast. I mean, you could hear it in the language Used. I mean, we're moving from grievous evils to great joys. Did you hear the gift of God? Good and fitting. Find enjoyment. Enjoy. Rejoice. Joy in his heart. You know, we talked about earlier last week where God is mentioned, I think, seven times in the first seven verses of chapter five. It's the highest concentration of a direct um, awareness of God. But here, in this, in these Verses, God is, is there four times. And what are wise investments? Work hard. Enjoy your work. Eat and drink. Enjoy simple everyday pleasures. Pleasures that money really is needed to buy. I mean, Paul would sum it up well, right? So whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
a wise investment here is to acknowledge the sovereignty and providence of God, to be content, to rest, to trust God and to rest. Eat and drink, everyday pleasure. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, most of us find getting together with someone to eat a good thing, you know, around the family dinner table, maybe folks meeting for lunch. And in those relationships, intimacy, right, is cultivated. Um, you, You don't really enjoy a meal with someone who you can tell you're a project for or with someone who just comes across that they are better than you. I mean, that is not an enjoyable meal. But sitting down with a friend, it's a gift from God. It is a gift from God. And so no wonder Paul can say, do all to the glory of God, and he references eating and drinking. Uh, Did he have Ecclesiastes in mind? Was Solomon's wisdom that he's sharing in this Showing up in the New Testament, you bet it is. So we asked about our investments earlier. Sad investments don't satisfy. Bad investments actually harm you and others. How about now? Are you making any wise investments? Have you asked God for the power to enjoy what you do have? Have you asked God to help you be content with what he does provide? I mean, we've all seen it, right? We've seen the poor person with little to nothing of the world's good, joyful, rejoicing in the Lord. And we have seen the wealthy with everything that man could imagine having is miserable. So... Are there any of the investments in people that you're making paying off? Are any of the investments, I mean, like serving people, caring for them, loving them, not investing them to get out from them? Have you asked God to give you the ability to enjoy what may be the little you have? Or, conversely, for God to give you the power to enjoy the, the vastness of which you have. Don't let me be a slave to it. Don't let it be a Lord of my life. Let me live with open hands and an open heart. You see, the preacher's observations here have shown us what is sad, what is bad, and what is wise. I want us to finish up with two comments, two expressions that we see in our text the love of money, and the gift of God. The love of money, what it doesn't do, it doesn't satisfy us. What it does do, it can harm us. Recall Jesus' ministry. He speaks of riches that are deceitful, greed that is futile, He tells those who follow him to be rich toward God, to seek first his kingdom, and to trust God and thank God for his provision. Recall Paul. We heard it in 1 Timothy, and it's elsewhere, the dangers 
of the love of money and the uncertainty of riches. The love of money is dangerous and riches can be here today and gone tomorrow. But the author to the letter to the Hebrews, I think, sums it up really well in Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Hear it again. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Kids, you know how to tell if you love something or not? If it's taken away from you and you collapse and you find that life is not worth living. Wait a minute, did I just say that to the kids? You know you really love something if it's taken away from you and you can't live. That's the love of money. What was the other expression? The gift of God. What is it and how to get it? It's important to remember that God's grace is both common and special. Here in Ecclesiastes 5, we see a lot of common grace, food, work, enjoy, eat, drink. God, sunshine, the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is good to all. But we also know the aspects of special grace. John 4, he's talking to the woman, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And what does he say? If you knew the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. Um, when we were looking at Acts, Peter is talking to the magician. Remember, you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. Paul writes it pretty clearly in Ephesians to the church. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Again, Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because Jesus has said... I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, what good news is that, right? We're called to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And earlier I said, if what you love is taken away from you, you collapse, you disintegrate. God's love in Christ is secure. Why? Because... I will never leave you nor forsake you. My friends, if we then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? My friends, ask God for His good gifts. Our Father is liberal in His provision. He doesn't hold back. 
My friends, the central gift that we receive, of course, is Jesus. He is the treasure that we can never lose. Invest in your relationship with him. That will not be sad ultimately because it will satisfy. That will not be bad because it will bring you no harm. But oh, it is wise to spend your energy and your efforts, your time, your talent, your treasure in investing in a relationship with the one who has made you and the one who saves you the one who rules you for your good and who will return for you and bring you to the place he has prepared for you. Indeed, you will find you will have treasures in heaven that won't rust, that won't wear out. My friends, Jesus is the good gift. He's the treasure that you can never lose. Invest in your relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for not spoon feeding us step by step, but sometime having us struggle to understand your word. And Father, we still just today see through a glass dimly. One day we will see clearly We are walking by faith now, but one day we will walk by sight. Oh, Father, be pleased through your word and by your spirit to strengthen our faith here and now so that we can invest wisely and so please you with the life that you've given us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.